Welcome back to Inside the Pastors uh, Study Podcast. Um, I'm Pastor Jeremy, and uh, um, PG was with me as we continued a conversation from last week, talking about some of these unhealthy divisions within the church. We started uh, talking about uh, the development of the church, or just recapping where our conversation has been, and, and then we spent some time talking about the the beginning of the worship wars and how that started to splinter the uh, the evangelical church. Um, there are a bunch of other things too, and our conversation continued, uh, and we're going to give you part two of that conversation today. Thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll, we will continue on now with those divisions that are unhealthy. The other big element of this, you know, in addition to the music, is is which Bible translation you preach out of. Wow, that's, that's a, almost another podcast. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I mean, all the way through to is it 1983, 1984, um, you have you you preaching out of the King James. Oh, um, sure. As an evangelical. Oh, um, sure. What I grew. I mean, I I was born around this era, but I I grew up memorizing scripture in the King James also. Um, but the publishing house Zondervan, um, Christian publishing house owned by non Christians. Yes. Um, now. Yeah. Now. Yeah. Um, creates a new Bible translation. It was in 1984, 1984. 1984, yeah. 1984 creates this new Bible translation where they have taken the uh, original, you know, the, the, the manuscripts that we have, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, and they've changed the wording. So it removes the, the, the old English and it attempts to move um, the words used into a, as like a fourth grade reading level or a seventh grade reading level in the Ameri- average American. And, and one of the other things that they attempt to do is they attempted to work with an international English syntax. It isn't just, um, it, it, for, for those of you in, as, as Rush Limbaugh used to say, for those of you in Rio Linda, <laughs> syntax is the now way... Now somebody else is triggered. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. It's a triggering episode. What do you know? <laughs> syntax is the way the sentence is structured. Yep where I put my verb, where I put my nouns, and so on. So, so one of the other things that the NIV attempted to do was they attempted to embrace a, uh, a common English syntax that, wasn't, that isn't Greek, and it isn't Latin, and it isn't Hebrew. So there was a definite change there as well. Right, because with your King James, you're, you're in that Old English, but they're trying to still arrange words. Actually, they're translating according to the Latin Vulgate, which is a... A fun right, little piece of right. trivia in the um, Old Testament, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that one's fun, but um, so they're not even <laughs> coming out of Hebrew with that. But they're um, with that one. They're trying to match that, especially with the Old Testament. They're matching more of that Latin um, the um, sentence structure. Right. So right. with with the emergence of the NIV, um, now you've got another real problem where, right. where churches are now right. confronted with this new Bible translation, and they. Again, well, they're divided over it. Here's the thing. There were other Bible translations before that. There, yeah. They were, I mean, there was the New Living Bible. There was the uh, the Good News for Modern Man. Uh, the uh, Episcopal Church had put together the Revised Standard Version. The New American Standard Version was out. The American Standard Version was out. Here's what made the NIV distinct, and that was it was so well done, and it was so well researched that it it actually it actually was a a bible that could be used by everyone and be read by everyone 
And suddenly in evangelical Christianity, the New American Standard was out there, everybody was happy with that. But suddenly there is now a Bible translation that definitely rivals the King James, that is usable on an everyday basis, and scary is usable from the pulpit on an everyday basis. Right, and this is the thing, right? Like the, the NIV is probably one of these first translations that is as good for the, um, for the pastor and his research as it is for the person who has just come to Jesus and is opening the book of John for the first time. Yeah, you know, I got started pastoring about that time. Uh, my first my first pastor was 1987. And I remember being in that, um, that Hell's Kitchen of that time frame. Uh, Hell's Kitchen, for those of you who... I'm from New York, so, you know, the East River, the... the Hudson Bay comes up to a point in the East River, and then the East River comes down, and the water flowing both directions causes rapids that's called the Hell's Kitchen area of uh, of the East River and of New York City. So I was kind of in that royal time, and I remember hearing guys who just preached from the King James, and I'm listening to them, and I'm realizing they're spending... They're spending 10 to 15 minutes of their 30-minute sermon just explaining what this archaic text says. Mm -hmm. And then they can spend 15 minutes actually making a conclusion or drawing some kind of a... And I'm thinking to myself, how about I use the NIV and then everybody knows what the text says. I don't have to spend 15 minutes there and I can actually spend 30 minutes actually identifying and pulling out the truth that's in that text. So so that was a that was a rough time, but I, I think the NIV really does make a huge change in the culture. Yeah. And you again have fights over this. Yes. Because you grow up hearing it in a certain way. I, I served with an older pastor for years who you know, we preached out of the ESV, English Standard Version, which is what we use in our current church as well, which is like a is like the uh, the grandchild of the NIV, yeah, like it kind of takes, takes the some NIV of the to a better it, level. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It improves uh, the heart of the NIV. Um, uh, but he would still he would still say, yeah, but there's nothing like the ring of King James, you know, of the King James in certain verses, right? Because it's it, it's um, nostalgia for it comes it becomes nostalgia for a lot of people. Well, hey, I have I have Bible verses that I have memorized from the time I was a kid. And I still recite them in King James because that's what I know. Yeah, I, I actually, I even do the same thing and I have to like mentally do the translation. Like, you know, like you're going to another country and you have to like translate your heart language into like the one you're speaking to. Right. It's right. not as much, but I, I do the same thing also when I'm pulling out memory verses. I have to like, oh, which, what am I doing here? Um, and I just, I've created the new Jeremy version. And, right, and right. From those things. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, but that it, it's, a, it's a huge challenge, and so um, I remember even um, early in my ministry, I get a phone call from a church that's interested in um, me interviewing to be their lead pastor, and uh, I don't even know where they got my information from. It might have been from the college I went to, um, but they uh, they call me and we're having this long conversation, and, and it's interesting. Um, and they get to this point of they ask me what Bible translation I use. And by the time that I'm in ministry, um, that has now become a trigger for me 
And when I hear a church ask me what Bible translation I use, I know that for that church asking that question at this stage of the interview process, there is one right answer and a bunch of wrong ones. And, um, and it's sure enough, my, my gut was right on that. Like, you know, as soon as they knew that I preached from the ESV or that I was happy using multiple versions of scripture in my study, um, it ended the conversation. I wasn't what they were looking for. And, uh, th- again, this is, a, this is, this is silly church. Like this whole thing of, of what we, of how we use our preferences and we actually rule people out of the club because of their preferences. Uh, it, it's silly. And those are certainly things that as a church, we need to repent of. So I had a really bad church experience as a pastor and, um, it, it was, it was a cultural issue. It was a lot of difficulties. I'm an NIV guy. I use the NIV. Uh, that church said to me, this is kind of on that edge, right? This church said to me, well, you know, we'd prefer that you preach from the King James. So I'm like, okay. So I went out and I bought a, a Schofield King James Bible that I could use in the pulpit. And that was, that was my pulpit Bible, and I, I would make annotations in it. But uh, during my prep time, during my office time, I was using my NIV. And and I would prep my sermon based upon the NIV text, and I would work it into the King James Version, and I, I would preach. And when I left there, one of the complaints that was offered about my leaving was, yeah, he didn't even use, he didn't use the King James. He, he just used it in the pulpit. He was actually using another translation in his office. You know, and the crazy thing is, uh, yeah, I was using another. I, I, most of my sermons, I begin by translating from the Greek and the Hebrew and working them through. And I would actually work from original languages. Then I would check the NIV because it was so close, and I would see how the NIV had phrased it, worked with the syntax, and then I would go to the King James and work. So I was actually just throwing an extra step in on their behalf. But uh, yeah, look, if you have a good pastor, uh, he's probably starting with original language before he even gets to a Bible translation. So... Yeah, the, the Bible translation thing became a real issue, and it really wasn't necessary. Yeah, absolutely. So we're highlighting you know, two of these um, faulty divisions, these preference divisions here. And, and I think that like, as you're listening to this, you're starting to maybe, maybe now we're starting to kind of round out the conversation that we've been having for a long time here on wh- where all the background is on this. And I think that in, in today's church, we're seeing a little bit less of these two divisions that really, you know, peaked probably early mid nineties. Right. Um, but we're still kind of living in the aftermath of that because the churches that you're now going to, like, it's just a matter of like, when did they start shifting over from only hymns? There's only a few of those churches left out there that right. still have the four hymns posted on the board in the front of the church that they sing every week. But, you know, church, most churches in the United States kind of gradually came into the integration of music. And so now we have churches that are meeting on Sundays and they may be like ours where we will do like, well, I don't know, like probably 90% um, contemporary music. You know, we'll throw hymns in 
um, because we do love them. Um, but that's kind of like our music style here at Marsh Corner. And there are other churches that are like writing their own music that is loud and smoke machine filled. And that's, that's a style. And you have those other churches that are more blended, but most churches have come through this phase and there's just slight differences, but the church, the damage was done. Right. And those churches were planted and, uh, and they exist in your community. And as new churches get planted, they're getting planted out of certain perspectives, but you probably have more in common with that church than you might have back in the nineties. Um, but now the damage is done. Right. And, and all of these churches exist in your community. We have, we have a great church a mile down the road from us. Um, that we sing differently, but we're really similar uh, in in how we in what we believe yes. in the faith. And uh, um, if you could erase the 1980s and the 1990s, we may be the same church. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, there there are people who have, I think that there are people who have gravitated and made him only churches. There's kind of a, a place where, you know, that church is out there. Um, that that church is actually very close to us. Uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's one, one of those. Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. They're they're still in hymns, and that's great, and it's wonderful. Um, I guess my question is, where do they stand on the Great Commission? Really, mm-hmm. um, I, I think that it's wonderful that those folks are enjoying that worship. I just don't know how many generations. You know, maybe there's a maybe there's a generation amongst them, a younger generation. Who have that as part of their uh, as part of their worship? I guess my question is: How many generations are left in those churches that are hymns only? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, because uh, it, I think that there's just coming a day where if you're going to if you're going to reach the nuns, uh, not ladies in black dresses, but you know, <laughs> if you're going to reach the N O N E's. Um, why? How would they? How is how is your how is your worship connecting to them as an evangelistic tool? Right. So which this is this is a callback to a conversation we had several episodes ago, when we talked about the uh, the color TV dials and right. um, what makes it ch- where a church finds its values. And this is local church stuff. Um, you know, it is a church value more the discipleship end of that spectrum where they have their group and they're going to just deepen that group or are they, you know, swinging more over toward like the other side of that dial where it's all about the expansion of the kingdom and the pro- proclamation of the gospel and other things take a back seat to that heart. Um, and uh, at some point, though, if you're only ministering to your group, your group either grows up and passes away or they leave. And if you're not replacing them at the same rate, um, your church dies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you know what? There's room for... Uh, uh, here's another offense, right? Right. There's room for churches dying. Whoa, yeah. yeah. You know, um, churches churches have life cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, Every church has to either grow or die, and there are just some churches that, and and I'm not I'm not for burying churches early. Um, I think as long as you have a group of people that can afford a pastor, they should they should work through that, and they should. But I think that uh, you know, <laughs> maybe being a little cynical, I think that they should have a plan on who they're turning their assets over to, mm-hmm. because th- they're going to die. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a life cycle. So 
So if your church is hymns only and King James Version, um, who are you reaching with that? Yeah, yeah it's a worthwhile and, question. And how how aggressive and effective is your um, is your next generation in rebuilding? Yeah. Otherwise known as uh, if your nursery has cobwebs in it. Uh, because you don't have uh, child-bearing adults. Yep. And uh, your nursery has cobwebs and your baptismal is dry. Th- then you've got 20 years. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't... This... One of the things we should do in the future, by the way, series-wise, is I think that we should do a series on all of the things that we wish pastors knew. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, but seriously, if, if your nursery, if you don't turn the lights on in your nursery on a Sunday morning, or you're turning them on for the pastor's child, um, and your baptistry is dry, then your church has 20 years. Because uh, the, way, the way the culture moves our families, the way uh, the, way the world is, um, if, if those two things are happening and you are not culturally relevant in your music and you're not culturally relevant in your proclamation of proclamation scripture. scripture then you're dying yeah you're dying so then this is a challenge for those of you listening it's a challenge for us as pastors here too um but part of the joy of being in unity with other believers who are outside of your church um is that you, it, it, it's good at removing blind spots. Um, and you get like great input from other pastors and other believers. You get good ideas from other churches um, that, are, that, are, um, that are out there serving. And you have the opportunity to continue to um, build a healthy faith community. Um, but if, if you become so exclusive in your beliefs, um, and in your preferences particularly, if you grow so exclusive in your preferences that you can't have unity with other believers outside of your local community, or and by community, I mean your actual church community, you're on your way to death. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and that's really one of the big differences. We've talked about all of these macro changes over history of like, well, this, you know, this denomination no longer believes in, you know, all of its all of its rooting being in scripture, and we need to divide from that. Um, and those have been healthy divisions. So important to step away from things like that. This this denomination, you know, this denomination is pro slavery. That's a mess. That that's not scriptural at all. That's not the heart of God. We need to distance ourselves from that group. Like those are all valuable things to fight over and to leave from. But things like whether you're going to be passionately pursuing unbelievers and you're going to, you're going to use the tools available to you to pursue those non-believers, and then to sit back with arms folded and say, that's not the way you should do it. I'm going to leave if you continue. Right. And that's, that needs to be repented of and right. needs to change. Absolutely. Hey, you know, at a third, a third uh, di- division that really isn't scriptural is, uh, and I haven't seen this as much, but I know it still exists, and that is uh, Sunday evening services and Wednesday, Wednesday night prayer meetings. Yeah. You know, I, I, I know of folks that, uh, you know, here at Marsh, we don't have a, uh, a Sunday evening service. Uh, we haven't for about 10 years. 
Um, I pastored a church in New Jersey for 13 years, and it was a church plant about 26 years, oh, 36 years ago. Um, when it was planted, it was never planted with a Sunday evening service. They they just decided right at the start that they were going to meet on Sunday mornings, mm-hmm. and that was it, and they were going to do other activities and things. So I know that there are those folks who look at a local church, uh, they'll, they'll look at it, that church's website, and, uh, you know, I hope you'll look at ours, marshcorner.com, and uh, they'll look at that church's website, and the first things, they'll, they'll look at two things, okay? They'll look to see if there's a doctrinal statement. Mm-hmm. So they'll read through that doctrinal statement, and that's great. And then the second thing that they'll look for is, when does this church meet? And it used to be, at least in my thinking, as an, as an ancient, that uh, an evangelical church meets Sunday mornings at 11 o'clock, and then Wednesday nights, or uh, Sunday nights, either at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock, and then Wednesday night for prayer meeting. Mm-hmm. And I remember looking at those and saying, this is what makes a church evangelical, mm. because they meet Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. And when I started here at Marsh, we still had like one Sunday evening a month that we had Sunday evening services, and we still had a prayer meeting on Wednesday nights, which was difficult because we also run uh, our Awana program, our youth ministries, all, all kinds of activity on Wednesday night. And over 10 years, you know, we did away with Sunday evening services, and we did away with the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And I know that there are folks that actually left Marsh because they felt that we were... No longer evangelical. We're no longer evangelical, exactly. We, yeah. you know, how could you, how could you say that prayer wasn't important enough to have its own night? Right, right. Right? And uh, how, could you, uh, how could you cut out the Sunday evening service? And there were, there were moments when it was... Um, uh, it, it was almost like in Ezekiel when, uh, you know, they, they sat down by the rivers of Babylon and their captives said, sing us a song. And, and they were like, how can we sing a song when we're so far from, from Israel where, oh, it was so beautiful there and the, the land was wonderful. And they didn't think that way when they were there. No, they right? didn't. The whole reason they got exiled is because they weren't <laughs> worshiping. Yeah. 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 So, so there was this thing with Sunday evening and Wednesday night. And the thing about Sunday evening and Wednesday night was that there was a time when that was very effective. We talked about the start mm-hmm. of prayer meetings. Right. Yeah, historically, yeah. because they... The haystack st- meetings, yeah. Th- yeah. They start as this God sent us into the harvest field mm-hmm. idea. And, and it was wonderful. It, it actually had an effect on the country. It was so great. It had an effect on commerce. And I, I feel like as we went into the, t- the 2000s, there were still people in our world who were tr- attempting to, to catch that Holy Spirit in a bottle. And you did that by having a Wednesday night prayer meeting where you re- remembered Aunt, S- Aunt, Aunt Sissy's goiter, you know, and, and it actually, you know, you would have, if you were around at that time, you, you would have these massive prayer lists and you were praying for all of these people's illnesses and maybe you were praying for people who were going to get saved, which would be awesome. 
and and you just like front and back, fine print, all of this prayer. And I got to a point as a pastor where I realized that all of that prayer had absolutely nothing to do with a prayer meeting. Right. Right. It did what so many things in church do. It, it went from something that had a heart for the lost and a heart for the Lord and a heart for growth and turned inward and became more about the sustaining of the club. Exactly. And this is like this, we do this as a church globally, not Marsh, although we have our blind spots in this too. We have a great idea that becomes something that must be sustained and then the, all of the effort goes into sustaining the great idea, not reaping the rewards from the great idea. Right, right. And it becomes this calcified golden calf that you cannot, you cannot get rid of. Right. And, and, and then, you know, pastors who come after you are saddled with then having to get rid of that golden calf and they get crucified for it and they get fired. And then another pastor can come in and hopefully lead the church out of that. That's right. Um, yeah. And, uh, um, but that's the thing that we do as churches. We have a great, we have a great idea turns into a great movement. And then for the next 50 years, we try and preserve the great idea just in case it works again. And we come all about the preservation of those programs rather than passionately pursuing the Holy Spirit. And again, you get frustrated and you leave. And you, you and all of your friends go to another church or you and all your friends create your new church and you hire another pastor to come in and do it the way that you had done it before because you will find a pastor who will try and do that with you. Exactly. And uh, maybe it will work and maybe it won't, but you've made an unhealthy division because yeah. you've been after a program. Sunday evenings are the same. Yeah. Right? So... Church I grew up in was called the Evangel Baptist Church, and the word evangel obviously means good news or to the telling of the good news. So their Sunday evening service was called the Evangel Hour, uh, and it wasn't called the Evangel Hour because it was all about the church. It's interesting because that church actually started their Sunday evening service as a way of reaching people who needed to hear about Christ. So, And they would do some more of that contemporary music in that service. Yes. Yeah, because yes. you could. And yeah, yeah, it was all about, yeah. yeah. Yep. So history-wise, just real history picture, right? Um, 1930s, 1940s. By the way, Evangel was a German-speaking church. Um, they started their Sunday evening service as an English-speaking service because they wanted to reach people. Um, and in um, in the 1930s, they actually got rid of their German-speaking services because they didn't want anything to do with Adolf Hitler. Still a church full of Germans, which was pretty crazy. But anyway, um, so the Evangel Hour, that Sunday evening service, that was an outreach service. So here's how this worked. Um, in the 1960s, 1950s, you've been with us, we know this, people went to church because it said, I'm not a communist, mm -hmm. right? So... Uh, you would ask your per your friend, hey, come to church with me Sunday morning, and the answer would be, oh, sorry, I'm already going to church. Yeah. Right? So Sunday evening services start as an evangelistic tool to people who were already going to church but were going to mainline churches or going to Catholic churches because they weren't we're communist. evangelicals, and evangelicals, so you have to have a relationship with Christ. So you're going to reach out to the people that you know that are going to church. So you would say to them, great news, we have an evening service. Would you like to come to the evening service? And you would invite them, and yeah, there would be more upbeat music. There would be, uh, my church actually had an orchestra. We had uh, 
three guys that played the trumpet, four guys that played trombone, a uh, guy that played the tuba, a couple of you know, a couple of reed instruments here and there, a couple of violins. It was it was loud, it was proud, it was really awesome, and it was really really great. And people would come to the evangel hour, and you're supposed to bring friends. Mm-hmm. And you could probably show up without wearing your suit and tie that you wore that morning, too. Well, at least you could wear with the jacket. You could leave the tie. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, more, yeah. more relaxed. So fast forward to the 70s. TV Wonderful. has come into people's houses. In the wonderful world of Disney okay. on Sunday nights. I hated going to the Sunday evening service <laughs> when I was a kid because the wonderful world of Disney was on at 7 o'clock. Same time as church. Imagine. Anyway, um, people were less likely to come out to church. The evangel hour loses its focus as an outreach ministry. It becomes a, a time when the pastor could get into a deeper concept of the serv- of scripture. Mm-hmm. So that deeper concept is now what is part of the Sunday evening service. And I think a lot of churches did this because I pastored several churches where we did Sunday evening services, and the objective of Sunday evening was, let's do a deeper Bible study. Mm-hmm. And it was no longer about reaching the lost. It was no longer... Now, Now, actually, that even changes in the 80s and the 90s to, hey, invite your friend to church on Sunday morning. Right, because it's less deep. Because and Sunday evening is for where the really serious believers go. Right, right, yep. right. So now we've got, now we move into the 90s to the 2000s. Sunday evening services are dead, folks. If your church has a Sunday evening service, you're probably not going to it. Yeah, that's probably true. We don't even have to go any further than that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's like 3% of your congregation shows up to that out of obligation. Yeah. yeah. And if your church has a prayer meeting, you're going to pray, pray through this massive prayer list, and you, you know what the other thing you're going to do for the rest of that hour? Complain about the people who aren't there, who well, used to be there. Right, and the pastor's going to have a deeper Bible study. Yeah, yep, that's right. All right. So that's, the thing that we, that's another thing we do, right? Like, we, <laughs> we, we turn inward so often, and we start, you know, we start looking for what is this experience going to bring me um, well, I already know all of this about the Bible. The pastor's been preaching this series for the last six weeks, and he hasn't told me anything new. So let's go something deeper. I want to learn something. We've lost the perspective of, hey, there's a whole lost group of people out there who know none of this, who right. need to hear it. Right. And we just sit around getting fat as Christians, you know, soaking in all of this spiritual food and never exercising it. Right. And uh, we end up in cardiac arrest. Right, right. Yeah. Right. The other one, you know, uh, um, the other, we hinted at another one, you're talking about dress code in churches, like some of these fast growing churches, right? They don't, you can show up in the same clothing you wore like the day before and people just shrug and don't care. And then there are other people who are panicking. You know, we lived in, we both served in churches an exit apart in New Jersey for a little bit. And in your church, it was this beach culture thing and people would show up to Sunday morning service um, the first service, because it gave them more time on their boats, 
they'd show up wearing like their board short swimsuits and like, I remember one guy serving like communion or something in a Corona, Corona t-shirt. Yeah. yeah. That was like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Which, you know, was not the norm. That guy had a conversation coming to him later. I think when I remember, but anyway, like that's the culture there, the dress code. And I ended up serving in this very old church, um, um, out, out of, you know, into my ministry. And, um, I would wear, um, um, you know, a, a sport coat, and I would often wear jeans. It's become my uniform. And I would wear jeans on purpose in that church because in that church, all of the men wore suits and ties still. And so I would just, as an exercise in stretching them a little bit, would show up close, but not quite on the, uh, uh, um, on the, in the dress code because nobody in our community, I, we were closer to the beach than your church was. Right. And nice. no one in our community wore suits on the weekend. Few people in our community wore suits in the office during the week. And so it was this holdover in culture. And I remember having uh, an older gentleman who I, who I eventually ad- learned to adore, but this older gentleman who would complain to me week after week after week that I wasn't wearing a tie. And in my head, I was thinking like, yeah, but your polyester tie from the Christian bookstore is hideous. You know, um, and uh, the, uh, I remember having, somebody came to the senior pastor I was serving with uh, after a Sunday and pulled him aside and said, are we paying Pastor Jeremy enough money? Because I just, I noticed like he just wears his dungarees to church every week. And, um, you know, if it would help, I can give you, um, you know, I can give you a little bit of money that you can give to him to get proper clothes. And uh, my, the pastor I served with had just—he was a wonderful. He is a wonderful man and had a, has a great sense of humor. And he's—he laughed at the person that said, "I imagine that Pastor Jeremy's dungarees cost more than your suit did." Um, yes. And uh, I think he's fine. And uh, but yeah, it, this this other divisive preference thing um, that. Ultimately, I think all of these have the same root. Right, right. The root is self over others. Yes. And, and the, the root is preservation over expansion. Yes, yes. And when churches get into this space of preservation of experience and comfort over being willing to be uncomfortable and pursue the lost, then they are on their way to death. Funny story on that. We, uh, we, we used to live in a town that was uh, near Franconia, Pennsylvania. And Franconia, Pennsylvania is uh, the home of uh, a very large Mennonite uh, family, mm-hmm. just hu- hugely Mennonite. So uh, as, as you would drive out the main road through Franconia, there, was, there were two Mennonite churches that were right next to one another, like right next to one another. And uh, our landlord actually went to one of those churches. So one day I, I went to him and I said, so just out of curiosity, tell me about two churches next to each other, right? The one church, if you drove past it on a Sunday, all of the cars were black, dark blue, or dark green. The other had bright colored cars. And he said, well, here's, here's the issue. He said, uh, he went to the bright colored car church he said, um, a bunch of us, he said, many of us felt that we didn't want to button our, the top button of our shirts on Sunday morning. We felt that that, was, that that was just not who we were, and it was very uncomfortable, and it was culturally inappropriate. So we wanted to unbutton the top button of our shirts. 
and the old church wanted the top button on men's shirts buttoned all the way to the top. So our split, our separation was over whether our shirts should be buttoned or unbuttoned. But since we were close enough, some, many of us were like sons and daughters of, we just divided the church property in half and we built a new church on the new piece of property. So we're right next to one another. And I said, so over the shirt buttons, huh? He says, yeah, yeah. So then I was talking to another brother who had gone to Cedarville with us and lived in that same area. And I said, so you go to this church over here. You go to this Mennonite church. He said, where does that church start? He says, oh, he says, we started in the Franconia church. I said, really? I said, what differentiates you from the other church? He said, well, we used to go to the church where they wanted to unbutton their collars, but we didn't feel that that was right. So we wanted to be more culturally appropriate. So we wanted to wear ties. So that church, the, the third church, the younger church, they wore jackets and their shirt buttons buttoned with a necktie. And the necktie was too much for the other two Mennonite churches, so they had to split. So there's three churches that have split all split over clothing. Over men's clothing, especially men's collars. Yeah, yep. Who otherwise would believe the same thing and probably would finish the service and go eat at the same, around the same table. Around the same, t- yeah, yeah, because you probably have three generations of, of the same family of Mennonite who are all going to a Mennonite church, and and I'm not running down the Mennonites here. By no, any means. this is a this is a uh, this, this is just a great picture of what we have done in the evangelical church. Absolutely, yeah, we've, absolutely. We've just gotten to this. We many of us have gotten to this place where we're no, <laughs> we're standing on our convictions of preference, not on our convictions of scripture. Right. And this is the thing that needs to be repented of and right. changed. Those are not things that should divide churches. Right. Right. Not at all. There was a. There was one more that um, is harder to catch, but one more division that I think that I can think of off the top of my head that still exists in these church in churches. And that's how the pastor preaches out of the text. You know, is that does the does the pastor preach verse by verse through a text, or is he, you know, does is he more expositional? Is he, you know, like those are all also things that that get churches all wound up and frustrated with one another. And right, right, you know, and if that pastor doesn't leave, I'm going to right, <laughs> and, right. Uh, yeah, again, it's another one of these things that, like, well, you're, are you hearing, are you hearing from the word? Like, are you being, is the Holy Spirit working through it? Is, is the pastor saying something that would be that you would disagree with? Is it something that is heretical? No, no, it's not at all. It's just that he didn't go verse by verse and tell me what the Greek word was. Right, right. He, he just gave me the three points and told and prayed, and that's just not right. Right. And you know, you walk, you just as a pastor, I hear stuff like that, and it it drives me up a wall. Right, right. Can't I do both? Maybe we'll do a series where we do like verse by verse, and maybe we'll do a series where this passage really lends itself to three P's of faith. You know, like, like, and like, but again, like, we start to focus on our preferences. We make those things legalistic issues that we will fight over, and we divide. And in our division, we're yeah. one step closer to the grave. So I used to preach verse by verse. And uh, I remember going verse by verse through, I think it was First Corinthians in a church. And uh, I found that 
my congregation was no longer bringing their Bibles because they said to themselves, well, he's just going to be in 1 Corinthians again. And, and I'll tell you what, as a pastor, I bristle at that. I, I think that it's difficult uh, to be in a place. And, and here's, here's a principle that I carry out uh, just uh, personally. I hate sermon series that go over eight to 10 weeks. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to be 15, 20 weeks in a passage, in a, in a Bible book, um, I struggle with that. I've, I've done it here at Marsh, mm-hmm. but I struggle with staying in something so very long in a series that, uh, that people lose touch with it. Um, yeah, we're a sitcom culture. At most, you get 20 episodes in a season. And we're we out. are, yeah, yeah. And, but, but even most sitcoms now are 13 episodes in a season. Yeah, or even, you know, you go online to some of the online sites like Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, it's eight. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. eight. So, and, and I've done that here. For example, I've done, when I first started here, I started in the book of Acts. We did Acts chapter one through Acts chapter eight. And then I stopped. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the next, like the next year, I picked up a chapter nine and went uh, through chapter 12, which is a natural break. I'm just going to start. My theory was uh, I would start uh, the third season of the book of Acts with the first missionary journey. And, uh, and the we, church is still waiting for that season, they isn't it? Are, yeah. They are. They <laughs> are. Several years later. Yeah. 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 So yeah. this is, again, like these are all things. And I'm hoping that you know, we've spent so much time talking about um, the 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 breaks that make sense. And so as you've listened to these podcasts, you know, over these last several weeks, I, I, you know, you're probably thinking like, well, then are all denominations fine then? Like, cause this sounds like a different message than what I've heard, you know, from all of these other spaces. And so like, this is the other side of the, this is the other side of the coin. Not, not all, not all, um, church, um, not all local churches have found their origins in the right place. Right. Right. Um, there are a lot of local churches that exist. You might be going to one that exists um, because it, it started off as a break from another body of believers over something really silly. Right. Um, and looking at, at the time, it was a big deal, but looking back on it is now really silly. Hatfield and McCoy stuff, like a pig got killed and you don't even know it several generations later. You just know you hate those people. Right. And um, this is the stuff that like needs to be fixed in, in the in in the American church, in the church in general, but in the American church, this is the stuff that needs to be fixed. Um, so we'll come back, I think next time and, and talk about what we think some of our fixes could be. Um, how, what does the church do? What, you know, you, you meet on the other side of town from another great church. Um, how, how do you move forward? Do you combine your assets and make one new church, you know, third Baptist church? Like what, what, you know, what, what, what's the next step? How do, what do we think? Maybe what are some of our ideas for the reconciliation of believers who have divided over silly things? And what does the church do? You know, we talked about some of these things that lead to death. When you focus on your, when you start to get focused on your preferences, you're on your way to death. Right. Um, so what's a church to do to um, prevent itself from going down that road?
So um, thanks for joining us today. I hope it's been insightful and helpful. Um, check out our, um, our Facebook page. Um, interact there if something uh, struck you, if you have an observation over what you've heard. Uh, and, and share the episode with a friend. And uh, you know, begin a conversation with the friend over what you believe about Jesus and how you're actually living out that faith. Because friends, here's the thing. The church is made up of its individual members. And you can sit back and say, oh, my church doesn't reach the lost, or my church is so focused on the lost that they're not growing deeper. Um, you've got to go to the next step and say, are, what are you doing? Are you reaching the lost? Are you so, or are you so focused on the lost that you have you know, forgotten to actually develop your own personal faith? Because the church's health is determined by the health of the individual members who make that up. So that'll be, there's a tease for something we can talk about when we come back. But thanks for joining us. Um, we'll see you next time. Bye. You've been listening to Inside the Pastor's Study Podcast, hosted by pastors George and Jeremy Stevens. Cover art by Caitlin Gallagher. Music by Sammy Kay. To find out more about us, head to marshcorner.com.